You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. All right, friends. Imagine with me that everyone that's a part of Midtown is invited to attend a, sh- a, a show put on by the Phoenix Symphony tonight downtown. We all get to go together. And it's a, a black tie event. We're dressed to the nines. We've got our suits and our dresses and our jackets and the rest of it. We show up, but we did get the tickets last minute, so we're kind of scattered around the room. We've got little clusters of Midtowners. So the Lufkin contingent over here, you guys are like 10 rows back from the stage, right in the middle. They get the best seats in the house. And this contingent, not so great, maybe like 12 rows back off to the right corner, but still a really nice setup. And then the rest of us, guys, I'm sorry, we're up on the balcony. But we're still at the show. It's amazing. And we get this kind of big, comprehensive view of the concert. So everyone gets there. We settle into our spots with our great outfits on. We scoop down the rows, and the lights dim, and the music begins. And the music is incredible. It's like a cathedral for our senses. And for the next hour and a half, we are blown away by some of the greatest music we've ever heard in our lives. And then, after the show ends, we all gather together to have a meal with each other, because that's what we love to do at Midtown. We love to have dinner together and catch up, and so we decide to debrief the show a little bit at dinner. And as we're talking about the things that stuck out to us, something remarkable comes up in each of our minds. See, each of our groups of people that attended this show noticed something different about the performance. Something stuck out to each of our groups in a unique way. So Lufkins, you guys were really struck by one particular movement in the show. You remember a distinct point when it gave you chills. And then this group right here was struck by the strings, how amazingly powerful these delicate instruments can be. And then the rest of us, up on the balcony, we kind of had this big picture of you. We noticed the narrative that the music was leading us through and all the themes that struck us throughout. And every single one of us in that show, we listened to the same music being played. Same notes played by the same musicians through the same instruments. And yet each of us heard something unique. Each of us experienced it uniquely. And at the end of our dinner, we came to the amazing realization that the music is always deepened and enhanced when we hear other perspectives of it. Our symphonies come to life all the more when we hear what they mean to other people. That's the beauty of these sorts of experiences, these powerful resonant experiences. And what's amazing is that the scriptures reveal something really similar to us when it comes to the story of Jesus' arrival into the world. See, the Bible doesn't just give us one story, one Christmas story. It actually comes to life through the eyes of a multitude of different characters, and each of them reveal a new facet to the Christmas story that brings it to life in a new way for us. We hear the divine music of Advent from various seats in the theater, and that's why we've created this new teaching series here at Midtown. Over the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at the characters of Christmas, As we enter into this anticipation of Christ's arrival in the world, we're going to see what each of these characters and their distinct perspectives reveal to us about the coming of Christ and how that speaks to us in our own way as we await the arrival of Christ again. And today, we're not just going to hear the perspective of one character, we're going to hear about dozens of characters that actually span most of the course of the Bible together. We're looking at the genealogy of Jesus at the start of the Gospel 
of Matthew. And in this genealogy, we get the big picture, the ultimate significance of Christmas for us. So friends, if you have a Bible, I invite you to open it with me to the Gospel of Matthew. This is the first book in your New Testament. So if you flip in there, find Matthew. We're going to be in chapter 1, verse 1, the very beginning. We're going to read all the way through verse 17. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. We have Bibles at the back table every week. So know that you can always grab a Bible and you can keep it. That's yours. We'd like to give that to you. Uh, but if you don't have one on you right now, the words will be behind me on the screen. You can follow along. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. An account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Aram, and Aram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, Joram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Salathiel, and Salathiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiu, and Abiu the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Eliad, Eliad the father of Eliezer, Eliezer the father of Matan, Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who's called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. <coughs> this is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. <sighs> Some names, right? We can be honest, folks. When we approach our Bible, we're often really well-intentioned. We think, you know, I, I really want to dig into this thing. I mean, I know that uh, I hear about who God is and who I am and all these amazing themes about life and peace and love and joy. It's worth digging into. I'm going to do it. I'm going to give it a good old college try. And so we start a Bible reading plan, right? We jump into our reading, maybe in the morning, maybe in the evening, whenever it works for you. And many of us who've been raised in a Christian home or a Christian adjacent home are taught to start our Bible reading in the New Testament. Because it's in the New Testament that we get all of the cool action with Jesus, right? We get the miracles, we get the teachings, we get the parables that make us reflect and think. And so we open up our Bibles to the New Testament, we're hyped, and then we get this list. And we're like, what? We end up oftentimes just kind of skipping like it's a Netflix show intro, right? We just will skip the intro, let's get to the action, right? We don't love encountering these sorts of things. It's like a picture from Ancestry.com. It's irrelevant to us, it seems. It's crazy, right? Matthew begins his biography of Jesus, someone who he believed was God incarnate. God come to earth to save all people, and he starts the dude's story with this list of names. It's like putting your headline on the third page and starting your newspaper with the obituaries, right? 
No one would do that. You don't put the arrival of the Savior back in the story. What is he doing here? I was talking with a friend of mine this week who loves Jesus and loves reading their Bible. And I mentioned we were starting Advent with this, and they were like, ugh. Because it's an intimidating thing. We come to names like this all the time in the Bible, and we cruise right past them. But friends, from the earliest days of Christianity, for as long as people have been following Jesus, this has been the start of our Jesus stories. The oldest records we have of our New Testament always begin with Matthew. Christians, from the very beginning, have said, this is where the story begins. This is where we start. So it's important for us to understand why. What's going on here? If Christians have always thought this is the beginning point, the foundation of the Jesus story, well, we need to understand it, right? And in order to understand it well, we have to understand what this genealogy would have meant to Matthew's original audience. See, to us, it looks like 23andMe, or it looks like Ancestry.com. But to the ancient world, this looked like a resume. See, in Jesus' day, your family, your pedigree, your clan, your relational connections, that was who you were. Those people were your resume. And you would use your genealogy as a way to recommend yourself or represent yourself to the world. Your genealogy represented your purpose in the world. And because that's true, people would flub and mess with their resumes. They would change around the genealogies to emphasize certain things or de-emphasize certain things, just like we do in our day, right? We all know this. We all know the fancy resume language that we have to use when we put our job experience on something. Mm -hmm. If you flipped burgers at one point, you don't put, I flipped burgers on your resume, right? Mm -hmm. You say that you honed your stellar work ethic as an essential employee of a global corporation, working alongside <laughs> other company representatives to ensure the highest degree of customer service. Yes! That's what you did. So right? good. You weren't just flipping burgers. That's how we picture our resumes. Uh, let's say you flunked out of semester uh, at college, right? Your first semester there, you didn't have your head on straight, and you flunked out, they kicked you out. But then you ended up changing things around. You get, went to a new school. You ended up getting a degree with a 3.5 GPA. Do you mention your first college? No. What they don't know won't hurt them, right? I represent the best version of myself on my resume. And all of us do this even beyond our resumes. Think about it. The stories that we tell about who we are to the world and where we've come from, we will include or exclude certain details to appear a certain way to other people. We all do this. And people did this with their genealogies back in the day as well. It was an intentional representation of who you were. We know, for instance, that Herod the Great, who was a notoriously violent and cruel king, actually changed parts of his genealogies to make himself look a little better. He changed parts of his family history to make himself appear a certain way, even when he wasn't really that way. So, in the context of the ancient world, this passage in Matthew wasn't just a list of random people. It was a way of telling the world who Jesus was. Embedded within these names is the whole of the story of the Bible that Jesus comes as the fulfillment of. This is like the Sparknotes version of the summary of the whole story. And it's telling us all about who Jesus is and why he came and why that's important to us. These names are not things that we should skip, like a Netflix intro. And I think there's three different things that are worth noticing for us when it comes to this genealogy today. The first thing is that we see Jesus working in the mess of real human life. Second, we see Jesus breaking down the walls of the world. And third, we see Jesus coming to bring ultimate peace. So first, we see Jesus working in the real mess of the real world. Notice, Matthew doesn't start the genealogy with a phrase like, once upon a time. 
<laughs> he doesn't start with some fanciful fairy tale beginning. He roots the story of Jesus in the best history of his day. He roots it in real people in the real world because he doesn't want the story of Jesus to turn into a fairy tale. He doesn't want the story of Jesus to become this nice moral fable that we tell to our children and our children's children so that they can be better and they can make the world better by their own effort. Because that's what we do with stories like this. This is what we do with religious figures. We make their amazing teachings or their amazing stories into a buck up and get better sort of message. Matthew wants us to avoid that. He's saying this is not a fairy tale. This is not some fanciful teaching. This is real. This happened in the realness of the real world. And that makes the story of Christianity unique in religious history. There's no other faith that does this. See, the whole picture of Christianity is about how God descends into the broken, messy world. Really descends into it in flesh and blood. It's not about the messy and broken world needing to work its way back to God. It reverses what we see in every other faith. In every other faith, a religious leader shows up and says, hey, this messy world, you guys got to clean it up. And here's how you're going to do it. You're going to believe these things, or you're going to do these things, or you're going to prioritize these things. And you can clean it up by your own effort. The Christian story goes the opposite way. It says God comes to us because we can't clean up the mess on our own, and we need God to clean it up for us. And in case we didn't know how messy the world was, this genealogy ensures we're reminded of it. The characters in this genealogy are messy people. Take Abraham, for instance. We think of Abraham as a great forefather of the faith, and in some ways he was, but he also made a lot of mistakes in his life. He was not a great moral representative for us. Remember that he cheated on his wife and forced a slave girl to sleep with him because he didn't get a baby on his own timeline. He made that move in his life. And then Jacob, his grandson, Jacob's name literally means heel grabber because from birth he was always tripping others up. He was always deceiving others. He was always undermining others to his own advantage. God eventually had to fight with Jacob to stop him from doing this because he kept deceiving. That's, that's what he did. But David, right? King David, well, he's this great man, right? A man after God's own heart. Well, that phrase is often misused describing David. He did a lot of great things, but David had a major downfall in his life. Remember that he stole another man's wife, forced her to sleep with him, got her pregnant, and then had her husband killed. That's David. And then if we keep going down these lines of kings, we hear about Manasseh. You guys remember Manasseh? We talked about him in the Jeremiah series a bit. He was a king who devoted his life to worshiping the gods of sex and wealth and power in his world. And he filled all of Israel with the relics of those ugly gods. At one point, he even sacrificed his own son to those gods. At another point, it's likely that he sawed the body of the prophet Isaiah in two in response to his message. This is a mess of a family tree. These are not the people that you would put on your resume if you wanted to talk about how impressive you were or how impressive other people need to be. If the message of Christianity was all about how we can buck up and get better because of the example of Jesus, then the genealogy wouldn't be this. Because the genealogy is full of brokenness at every level. That's the story here, that God descends into the messy world. He doesn't require the messy world to work its way back to him. Matthew wants us to hear the gospel message in the midst of all of these names that are unfamiliar to us. Friends, Jesus is not ashamed of human messiness. He's not afraid of human messiness. He includes it in his family tree. 
Matthew goes on later in his gospel to tell us that Jesus is a friend to sinners. Whatever we have to say about God, it has to look like Jesus. And Jesus is a friend to sinners. Not only that, he comes from a line of sinners, a line of broken, messy people. And so the good news of Jesus' arrival is that he welcomes all of us into our family, not because we're good enough, but precisely because we never can be. He extends his hand out to us, not because we're put together, but precisely because we're messy people living in a messy world. And we need to hear that because every single one of us carries into this room a heap of messiness today, myself included. So what's it for you? What's your mess right now? Maybe you've created a sort of mess in your life. Maybe it's your pride or your greed or your envy or your lust that just keeps creeping up and it's making a mess of your relationship. Maybe you're overwhelmed by the mess of the world around you, all the brokenness that exists. Maybe it's leading you into anxiety or despair or depression. Maybe you've been dealt a mess in your life. Maybe your family tree is full of mess or you've been subject to marginalization or abuse. Friends, you can't see it with your eyes right now, but this is a messy, messy room. But thank God for Jesus. Because he sees the mess. He was born into the mess. He was born out of the mess, and he came to clean up the mess. Friends, there is nothing any one of you has ever done that can disqualify you from receiving the love and grace of Jesus. There's nothing that you will ever do, there's nothing that you're currently doing that disqualifies you from receiving the love and grace of Jesus. And there's nothing that's ever been done to you that disqualifies you or someone else from receiving the love and grace of Jesus. Because God's plan of redemption and restoration is so much bigger than the mess you've made or the mess that's surrounding you in life. And so when we look at what Jesus' arrival means for us today, the genealogy is proclaiming loudly that into and out of the great mess comes the great Messiah. That's the first thing we learn. Genealogies can teach you a lot, huh? These names. It doesn't just stop with the messiness, God stepping into the messiness, it continues. We learn that Jesus breaks down the walls of the world in this genealogy. Notice in the first 14 generations outlined by Matthew, there's something really weird. We actually don't see anything else like this in any other ancient Near Eastern genealogy. There are four women mentioned in the first 14 generations of Jesus' line. You get Tamar. Tamar was an ethnic and religious outsider to Israel. She was a daughter-in-law who was obliged to pretend to be a prostitute in order to have an incestuous relationship with her father-in-law. Really a seedy story, right? That's in his genealogy. And then we have the story of Rahab. Rahab was also an ethnic and religious outsider. She was a prostitute in the city of Jericho, but she showed remarkable faith by protecting God's people when they presented themselves to her. And then we have the story of Ruth. Ruth, also an ethnic and religious outsider. She was a Moabite, a non-Israelite. And her gender and background put her at the bottom of the social totem pole in her day. And then we hear about the wife of Uriah. We don't get her name explicitly, but if we read the scriptures, we know who they're talking about. This is Bathsheba. This is the one that David stole. And the reason her name doesn't get a shout out here is because the authors want us to remember how terrible it was what David did to her. She's the wife of Uriah, not David's wife. Let's be really clear. David did something wrong. She was married to another man and was a victim of oppression of abuse. That's this woman in Jesus' line. And by the way, she also was married to a Hittite, a non-Jew. 
These names, friends, are unlike anything else we've ever seen. No one in that day put women in their genealogy because no one cared about women. It was a patriarchal society. Women weren't important to people's family lines. There were prayers in the first century. William Barclay talks about this in some of his research. He says that in the first century, there were prayers prayed by Jewish men that thanked God for not making them a Gentile, which is a non-Jew, not making them a slave, and not making them a woman. That's the society that we're living in. And Jesus has four of those women, all religious and ethnic outsiders, as part of his genealogy. Guys, this is not just a list of moral outsiders. This is a list of every outsider that you could come up with in your head. Gender outsiders, ethnic outsiders, religious outsiders, they're all here. Jesus owns that part of his family history. There's a scholar named Dale Bruner who talks about this, an amazing quote. He says, one gets the impression that Matthew poured over his Old Testament until he could locate the most questionable liaisons possible in order to insert them into the record. Yes. Why? Why is this here? Because it's trying to tell us that the arrival of Jesus breaks down the walls of the world. That every outsider, no matter where they've come from, no matter what they've done, can be welcomed into the family of God. That there's no wall that can prevent them from that. No matter what the ugly patriarchal systems of the world say about someone. No matter what the terrible racial and ethnic divisions of the world say about someone. No matter what seedy or corrupt stories you've come from, you are all welcome into the family of Jesus. In Christ's family, the women sit next to the men. They don't get superseded or ruled by them. The outsiders sit next to the insiders. They don't get excluded by them. And the prostitutes sit right next to the kings. The walls we use to divide people in our world are torn down in Jesus. None of us is brought near to God because of our gender, our religious excellence, or our family, or culture, or skin color. The only thing that brings us near to God is Jesus Christ. We're welcomed by what he has done, what his arrival means, not how impressive or unimpressive our resume is. And Advent is a season where we, as a church, get to remember that reality. Because we are Christ's family. We have become a community that embodies Christ's breaking down of the walls to the world. When we realize that, we start to look at our neighbors differently, friends. This place becomes something where the walls of the world no longer matter in the same way. And so we look at people that we ordinarily would disagree with, people like our atheist neighbors, or our Muslim neighbors, or our New Age neighbors, or our conservative neighbors, or our liberal neighbors, or our LGBTQ plus neighbors. We look at all of them differently. They're not our enemies. They're members of a family that we're called to welcome back in. Jesus arrived to break down the walls that prevent anyone from becoming a part of this family. By his grace, everyone can return to God. Everyone can return, receive God's forgiveness, and be a part of this new family. And that means that every person we interact with, independent of what walls might seem to exist between them and God, every person can receive the forgiveness of this loving Father. Everyone is welcome to receive his love and embrace their place in his family And in case you ever forget that, Jesus gave us a story. It's one of the most memorable ones in the scriptures. It's a story of a father who has two sons. And one of those sons says, I demand my inheritance from you, my father, before he's dead. He's basically wishing dead. And then he flees with his portion of the inheritance, and he squanders it in reckless living. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And he ends up in a pigsty. He realizes what he's done. And all the while, the older brother stuck around. The older brother stayed with the father, and he kept obeying the rules of the father. 
And then the younger son says, you know what? I'm just going to come back. Even if he just accepts me as a slave, it'll be better than this. And as he's coming back, the father lifts up his garments and runs goofily out to him. He embraces him with his arms. He puts a robe on him and a ring on him and says, there's nothing you have to do to be welcomed back. You came back. That's what matters. Come back home. We're throwing a party. Because you were lost and now you're found. And the older brother doesn't like that. The older brother says, no, 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 no. There are walls to prevent this from happening. There are walls. He's done too much. He's gone too far. He's emphasized the wrong things. He doesn't even have his life put together. He just came from the pigsty. He still smells like crap. And the father comes out to the brother and says, your son, your brother, my son is back. That's what matters. All those other walls, those are just blocks to receiving the family that we're made for. So come back in. The father pleads the older brother. And we don't get an answer at the end of that story because the older brother is many of us who sit in the church, friends. The older brother is many of us who are forced to address the walls that we use to keep other people out. The walls that we put to say, well, that person is disqualified. The walls that we put to uh, build ourselves up on top of others and look down on them. Friends, this genealogy is reminding us that Ethnic and religious and gender and moral outsiders are just as welcome into the family of God. When they turn back to Jesus, they can receive his forgiveness again. There's nothing that can stop that. And so those who disagree with us, those who seem like outsiders, they're not our enemies. They're beloved children whom Christ has run out to save from the mess and bring back in to life. And as an added note here, remember that Jesus himself was an outsider. The Jesus who followed, the Jesus who embraced, was an outsider at every part of his life. Remember he was the result of a teenage pregnancy before marriage, outside of marriage. He was born into a literal food trough amidst a bunch of stinky animals out in the cold. He was forced to become a refugee in a foreign nation. He was a day laborer most of his life. And then he was made an enemy by the religious establishment in his day. Jesus became an outsider from a family full of outsiders to ensure that every outsider could be welcomed back in. That's this story of Jesus. The genealogy teaches us a whole heck of a lot, you guys. And it's not just that Jesus came to clean up the mess of the real world. It's not just that he came to break down the walls of the world. It's that he came to bring ultimate peace. You may have noticed the weird number thing that Matthew does at the end. Verse 17, he says that there's 14 generations, and then 14 generations, and 14 generations. And he's actually telling much of the story of the Jewish people throughout their history. It's actually kind of a good summary of the whole Bible, but it's also doing more than that. See, those three sets of 14, that means that there's six sets of seven, right, if you cut them in half. Six sevens, which means Jesus' arrival is the seventh seven. And that's significant, because the number seven has always used in the scriptures to signify a sense of completion, of rest, and of peace. So, for instance, at the end of creating all things, God rests on the seventh day amidst the peace of all the good things that he's created. And then, later on, the Jewish people, every seven years, would let the land lie fallow, let the land rest, and experience the peace of what God had given them at that time. And then, the kicker, the seventh seven, the 49th year for the Jewish people, was called the year of Jubilee. And that was a year when all debts in the entire nation were canceled, forgiven, and when all slaves in the entire nation were freed from their obligations. 
And the year of Jubilee was the year of ultimate peace. The seventh seven was a year of healing the broken world that's been mired by broken relationships. It was a year that looked forward to when God would do that eventually. Matthew wants us to see that Jesus' birth is the seventh seven. It is the ultimate peace come to us. It is the bringing together of all those who are divided. It is the breaking down of every possible wall. The year of Jubilee has arrived, and we can experience the peace of God by knowing and embracing Jesus. And that means, friends, that whatever enslaves us in life, Jesus is here to break those chains and bring us peace. Whatever debts you carry in your life, Jesus is here to forgive them and bring you peace. And all of us are enslaved and indebted to all sorts of things. We're enslaved and indebted to constant striving to establish our worth. We're enslaved and indebted to consumerism, thinking that we can get enough to finally give ourselves peace. We're enslaved and indebted to money or sex or substances or whatever the thing is. And God has come into this world so that all of us could be welcomed into lasting peace, into an ultimate year of jubilee, when all debts are forgiven, when all slaves are free. Jesus came, friends, into a mess of a manger on a cold and dark night in our cold and dark world. He came to break down the walls of our world to ensure that everyone is welcomed into this family. And he came to break every chain that binds us, forgive every debt that weighs us down. Matthew's genealogy is clear to us that Christ has come to do all of that. So might we at Midtown be the sorts of people who receive that Christ anew over these next few weeks? Might we be the sorts of people that proclaim that Christ to a world in desperate need? Let's pray. Christ.